Chapter 5, Part 2 of Zone Policeman 88. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Zone Policeman 88, A Close-Range Study of the Panama Canal and Its Workers, by Harry A. Frank. Chapter 5, Part 2. There are men in the Z.P. who in former years have played horse with the startled markets of great American cities. Men whose voices will boom forth in the pulpit and whisper sage counsels in the professional in years to come. Men whose doting parents have sent to Harvard, on whom it failed to take except on their clothes. Men who have gone down into the valley of the shadow of death and crawled on hands and knees through the brackish red brook that runs at the bottom and come out again smiling on the brink above. Careers more varied than Mexican sombreros one might hear in any Z.P. squad room, were not the Z.P. so much more given to action than to autobiography. They bore little resemblance to what I had expected. My mental picture of an American policeman was that conglomerate average one unconsciously imbibes from a distant view of our city forces, and by comparison with foreign a heavy-footed, discordious, half-fanatical, half-irregular clubber whose wits are as slow as his judgment is honest. Instead of which, I found the Z.P. composed almost without exception of good-hearted, well-set-up young Americans, almost all of military training. I had anticipated, from other experiences, a constant bickering and a general striving to make life unendurable for a newcomer. Instead, I was constantly surprised at the good fellowship that existed throughout the force. There were, of course, some healthy rivalries. There were no angels among them, or I should have fled the Isthmus much earlier. But for the most part, the Z.P. resembled nothing so much as a big, happy family. Above all, I had expected early to make the acquaintance of Graft, that shifty-eyed monster which we who have lived in large American cities think of as sitting down to dinner with the force at every mess hall. Graft? Why, a zone policeman could not ride on a PRR train in full uniform when off-duty without paying his fare, though he was expected to make arrests if necessary and stop behind with his prisoner. Compared, indeed, with almost any other spot on the broad earth's surface, Graft eats slim meals on the canal zone. The average zone policeman would arrest his own brother, which is, after all, about the supreme test of good policehood. He is not a man who likes to keep blotters, make out accident reports and such things, that can be of interest only to those with clerks and bookkeepers' souls. He would far rather be battling with sun, man, and vegetation in the jungle. He is of those who genuinely and frankly have no desire to become rich and successful, a lack of ambition that formal society cannot understand and fancies a weakness. I had still another police surprise during these swivel chair days. I discovered there was on the zone a yellow tailor who made Beau Brommel uniforms at $7.50 compared with which the $5 ready-made ones were mere clothes. All my life long I had been laboring under the delusion that a uniform is merely a uniform. But one lives and learns. There are a few left, I suppose, who have not heard that gray-bearded story of the American in the Philippines who called his native servant and commanded, Juan, va fetch the caballo from the Prado and, and, oh, saddle and bridle him. Damn such a language anyway. I'm sorry I ever learned it. This is capped on the zone by another that is not only true but strikingly typical. An American boss who had been much annoyed by unforeseen absences of his workmen 
pounced upon one of his Spaniards one morning, crying, When you know por la noche that you're not going to trabaja por la manana, why in don't you habla? Si, senor, replied the Spaniard. By which it may be gathered that linguistic ability on the zone is on a par with that in any other U.S. possessions. Of the seven of us assigned to plain-clothes duty on this strip of seventy-two nationalities, there was a Colombian, a gentleman of Swedish birth, a Chinaman from Martinique, and a Greek, all of whom spoke English, Spanish, and at least one other language. Of the three Native Americans, two spoke only their mother tongue. In the entire white uniform force, I met only Lieutenant Long and the corporal in charge of Miraflores, who could seriously be said to speak Spanish, though I am informed that there were one or two others. This was not for a moment any fault of the Z.P. It comes back to our government, and beyond that to the American people. With all our expanding over the surface of the earth in the past fourteen years, there still hangs over us that old provincial backwoods bogey, English was good enough for me. We have only to recall what England does for those of her colonial servants who want seriously to study the language of some portion of her subjects to have something very like the blush of shame creep up the back of our necks. Child's task as is the learning of a foreign language, provincial old Uncle Sam just flat foots along in the same old way, expecting to govern and judge and lead along the path of civilization his foreign colonies by bellowing at them in his own nasal draw and treating their tongue as if it were some purely animal sound. He is well personified by Corporal Blank, late of the Z.P. The corporal had served three years in the Philippines and five on the zone, and could not ask for bread in the Spanish tongue. Why don't you learn it? someone asked one day. Ah, drawled the corporal, what's the use of going to all that trouble? If you have to have an interpreting done, all you got to do is to call in a nigger. Uncle Sam not merely lends his servants no assistance to learn the tongues of his colonies, but should one of his subjects appear bearing that extraordinary accomplishment, he gives him no preference whatever, no better position, not a copper cent more salary, and if things get to a pass where a linguist must be hired, he gives the job to the first citizen that comes along who can make a noise that is evidently not English, or, more still likely, to some foreigner who talks English like a mouthful of Hungarian goulash. It is not the least of the reasons why foreign nations do not take us as seriously as they ought, why our colonials do not love us, and, what is of far greater importance, do not advance under our rule as they should. Meanwhile, there had gradually been reaching me, through the proper channels, as everything does on the zone, even to our ice water, the various coupon books and the like indispensable to zone life and the proper pursuit of plain-clothes duty. Distressing as our statistics, the full comprehension of what might follow requires the enumeration of the odds and ends I was soon carrying about with me. A brass check. Police badge. ICC Hotel Coupon Book Commissary Coupon Book 120-trip ticket A booklet containing blank passes between any stations on the PRR to be filled out by holder Mileage Book Purchased by employees at half rates of two and a half cents a mile for use when traveling on personal business 24-trip ticket A free courtesy pass to all gold employees allowing one monthly round-trip excursion over any portion of the line Freight train pass for the PRR. Dirt train and locomotive pass for the Pacific Division. Ditto for the Central Division. Likewise for the Atlantic Division. In short, about everything on wheels was free to the gumshoe, except the yellow car. Passes admitting to docks and steamers at either end of the zone. Notebook. Pencil or pen. Report cards and envelopes. 
one of which the plainclothes man must fill out and forward to headquarters, via train guard, whenever night might overtake him. The gumshoe's day's work, as the idle-uniformed man facetiously dubs it. Furthermore, the man out of uniform is popularly supposed never to venture forth among the population without belt, holster, cartridges, and the number 38 colt that reminds you of a drowning man trying to drag you down, handcuffs, police whistle, blackjack, officially he never carries this, theoretically there is not one on the isthmus, but the gumshoe naturally cannot twirl a police club, and it is not always policy to shoot every refractory prisoner. Then, if he chances to be addicted to the weed, there is the cigarette case and matches. A watch is frequently convenient, and incidentally a few articles of clothing are more or less indispensable, even in the dry season. Now and again, too, a bit of money does not come amiss. For though the canal zone is a utopia where man lives by work coupons alone, the detective can never know at what moment his all-embracing duties may not carry him away into the foreign land of Panama, and even were that possibility not always staring him in the face, in the words of Gorgona Red, You've got to have money for your booze, ain't you? Which seems also to be Uncle Sam's view of the matter. Far and away more important than any of the plain-clothes equipment thus far mentioned is the expense account. It is unlike the others in that it is not visible and tangible, but a mere condition, a pleasant sensation like the consciousness of a good appetite or a youthful fullness of life. The only reality is a form signed by the Tsar of the Zone himself, tucked away among ICC financial archives. That authorizes the man assigned to special duty in plain clothes, to be reimbursed money expended in the pursuit of duty up to the sum of $60 per month. Although it is said that the interpretation of this privilege to the full limit is not unlikely to cause flames of light, thunderous rumblings, and other natural phenomena in the vicinity of Empire and Calabra. But please note further, these expenditures may be only for cab or boat hire, meals away from home, and liquor and cigars. Plainly, this gumshoe should be a bachelor. Fortunately, however, the proprietor of the expense account is not required personally to consume it each month. It is designed, rather, to win the esteem of bartenders, loosen the tongue of suspects, libate the thirsty stool pigeon, and prime other accepted sources of information. But beware, exceeding care in filling out the account of such expenditures at the month's end, Carelessness leads a hunted life on the canal zone. Take, for example, the slight error of my friend, who, having made such expenditure in Cologne, by a slip of the pen, or, to be nice, of the typewriter, sent in among three score and ten items the following. February 4th, two bottles beer, Cristobal, fifty cents. And in the course of time, found said voucher again on his desk, with a marginal note of mild-eyed wonder and more than idle curiosity, in the handwriting of a man very high up indeed. Where can you buy beer in crystal ball? All this and more I learned in the swivel chair waiting for orders, reading the latest novel that had found its way to Ancon Station, and receiving frequent assurances that I should be quite busy enough once I got started. Opposite sat Lieutenant Long, pouring choice bits of substation orders into the phone. Don't you believe it? That was no accident. He didn't lose everything he had in every pocket rolling around drunk in the street. He's been systematically frisked. Sabe frisked? Get on the job and look into it. For the lieutenant was one of those scarce and enviable beings who can live with his subordinates as man to man, yet never find an ounce of his authority missing when authority is needed. Now and then a ZP story whiled away the time. 
There was a side case of Corporal Blank in charge of Blank Station. Early one Sunday afternoon, the corporal saw a Spaniard leading a goat along a railroad. Naturally, the day was hot. The corporal sent a policeman to arrest the inhuman wrench for cruelty to animals. When he had left the culprit weeping behind padlocks, he went to inspect the goat, tied in the shade under the police station. "'Poor little beast!' said the sympathetic corporal, as he set before it a generous pan of ice water fresh from the police station tank. The goat took one long, eager, grateful draft, turned over on his back, curled up like the sensitive plants of Panama jungles when a finger touches them, and departed this veil of tears. But Corporal Blank was an artist of the first rank. Not only did he get away with it, under the very frowning battlements of the judge, but sent the Spaniard up for ten days on the charge against him. Z.P.'s who tell the story assert that the Spaniard did not so much mind the sentence as the fact that the corporal got his goat. Then there was the mystery of the knocked-out niggers. Day after day there came reports from a spot out along the line that some negro laborer, strolling along in a perfectly reasonable manner, suddenly lay down, threw a fit, and went into a comatose state from which he recovered only after a day or two in Ancon or Cologne hospitals. The doctors gave it up in despair. As a last resort, the case was turned over to a Z.P. sleuth. He chose himself a hiding place as near as possible to the locality of the strange manifestation. For half the morning he sweltered and swore without having seen or heard the slightest thing of interest to an old zoner. A dirt train rumbled by now and then. He strove to amuse himself by watching the innocent games of two little Spanish switchboys not far away. They were enjoying themselves, as guileless childhood would, between their duties of letting a train in or out of the switch. Well on in the second half of the morning, another diminutive Iberian, a water boy, brought his compatriots a pail of water and carried off the empty bucket. The boys hung over the edge of the pail a sort of wire hook, the handle of their homemade drinking can, no doubt, and went on playing. By and by a burly black Jamaican in shirt sleeves loomed up in the distance. Now and then as he advanced, he sang a snatch of West Indian ballad. As he espied the switch arrows, a smile broke out on his features, and he hastened forward, his eyes fixed on the water-pail. In a working species of Spanish, he made some request to the boys, the while wiping his ebony brow with his sleeve. The boys protested. Evidently they had lived in the zone so long, they had developed a color line. The negro pleaded. The boys, sitting in the shade of their wigwam, still shook their heads. One of them was idly tapping the ground with a broom-handle that had laid beside him. The negro glanced up and down the track, snatched up the boy's drinking vessel, of which the wire looped over the pail was not, after all, the handle, and stooped to dip up a can of water. The little fellow with the broomstick, ceasing a useless protest, reached a bit forward and tapped dreamily the rail in front of him. The Jamaican suddenly sent the can of water some rods down the track, danced an artistic buck-and-wing shuffle on the thin air above his head, sat down on the back of his neck, and after trying a moment in vain to kick the railroad out by the roots, lay still. By this time, the sleuth was examining the broom handle. From its split end protruded an inch of telegraph wire, which chanced also to be the same wire that hung over the edge of the galvanized bucket. Close in front of the innocent little fellows ran a third rail. Then suddenly this life of anecdote and leisure ended. There was thrust into my hands a typewritten sheet, and I caught the next thing on wheels out to Corozel for my first investigation. It was one of the most commonplace cases on the zone. Two residents of my first dwelling place on the Isthmus had reported the loss of $150 in U.S. gold. Easier burglary than this the world does not offer. Every bachelor quarters on the Isthmus, completely screened in, is entered by two or three screen doors, 
none of which is or can be locked. In the buildings are from twelve to twenty-four wide-open rooms of two or three occupants each, no three of whom know one another's full names or anything else, except that they are white Americans and ipso facto, so runs own philosophy, above dishonesty. The quarters are virtually abandoned during the day. Two Negro janitors dawdle about the building, but they, too, leave it for two hours at midday. Moreover, each of the forty-eight or more occupants probably has several friends or acquaintances or enemies who may drift in looking for him at any hour of the day or night. No Negro janitor would venture to question a white man's errand in a house. Panama's below the Mason and Dixon line. In practice, any white American is welcome in any bachelor quarters, and even to a bed, if there is one unoccupied, though he be a total stranger to all the community. Add to this that the Negro tailor's runner often has permission to come while the owner is away for suits in need of pressing, that John Chinaman must come and claw the week's washing out from under the bed where the roughneck kicked it on Saturday night, that there are a dozen other legitimate errands that bring persons of varying shades into the building, and above all that the bachelors themselves, after the open-hearted old American fashion, have the all but universal habit of tossing gold and silver, railroad watches and real estate bonds, or anything else of whatever value, indifferently on the first clear corner that presents itself. Precaution is troublesome and un-American. It seems a fling at the character of your fellow bachelors, and in the vast majority of zone cases it would be. But it is in no sense surprising that among the many thousands that swarm upon the isthmus, there should be some not adverse to increasing their income by taking advantage of these guileless habits in bucolic conditions. There are suggestions that a few, not necessarily whites, make a profession of it. No wonder our chief trouble is burglary, and has been ever since the Z.P. can remember. Summed up, the payday gold that has thus faded away is perhaps no small amount. Compared with what it might have been under prevailing conditions, it is little. As for detecting such felonies, Police officers the world around know that theft of coin of the realm in not too great quantities is virtually as safe a profession as the ministry. The Z.P. plainclothes man, like his fellows elsewhere, must usually be content in such cases with impressing on the victim his Sherlockian astuteness, gathering the available facts of the case, and return to typewrite his report thereof to be carefully filed away among headquarters archives, which is exactly what I had to do in the case in question, diving out the door, notebook in hand, to catch the evening train to Panama. I was growing accustomed to ANCON, and even to ANCON police mess, when I strolled into headquarters on Saturday the 16th, and the inspector flung a casual remark over his shoulder. Better get your stuff together. You're transferred to Coton. I was already stepping into a cab en route for the evening train when the inspector chanced down the hill. New Coton is pretty bad on Saturday nights, he remarked. All too well I remembered it. The first time a nigger starts anything, run him in and take all the witnesses in sight along. Uh, that reminds me, I haven't been issued a gun or handcuffs yet, I hinted. Hell's fire, no? queried the inspector. Tell the station commander at Gaton to fix you up. End of chapter 5, part 2 Recording by Todd